I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, the verses 21 through 28. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." We then turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now we come to our text. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever seen anyone wear a cross? These days, all sorts of people wear a cross. Celebrities, rap stars, people of whom you would not necessarily assume that they are Christians. But Christians wear them as well. Maybe you do yourself. Maybe you're wearing one this very morning. What does it mean, actually? Not everybody knows. Some people think that wearing a cross represents hope or faith in a general kind of a sense. Now, if you're sitting here this morning wearing a cross, then you might be more specific if someone were to ask you, and you might say, well, I wear one because I believe that Jesus died to take away my sins. And it certainly means that, but it means more than that as well. The cross points to more than just what Jesus did. It also points to what Jesus calls us to do. The cross represents his crucifixion for us so that we can belong to him. But because we belong to him, we are empowered to fight sin in our lives. And our passage, our text this morning refers to that as a crucifixion as well. It says that if you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires You are empowered to do so by the Spirit of Christ, and your motivation is not just for yourself, it is the glory of Christ. So that's also how we will approach our text this morning. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, because you are empowered by the Spirit of Christ, and because you are motivated by the glory of Christ. So we've spent well over a year now, reading Galatians together. And one of the things that you begin to notice when you spend a lot of time in this letter is that the Christian life is about so much more than just being a moral person. A lot of people think that way. They think Christianity is about being moral. And if it's only about being moral, then really you don't need to be a Christian, do you? then it's not necessary to be religious. As long as you're a moral person, as long as you live a good life, they say, then God will be happy with you. And most people agree with each other on the basics of right and wrong. Even unbelievers have a certain code that, that generally speaking, most people abide by. And beyond that, maybe everybody has their own list of acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And maybe... Your list even represents or even echoes or assembles the list of the fruit of the Spirit that we read. But here's the thing you need to know. If it is not produced by the Spirit, then it is not the fruit of the Spirit. And if it is not the fruit of the Spirit, then it can never be acceptable to God. God will only ever accept absolute perfection. He's too pure to tolerate evil in any form. As the Belgian Confession puts it, even if we could show one good work, the remembrance of one sin is enough to make God reject it. Even if 
you could show one perfectly good work. And which of us could? The remembrance of one sin is enough to make God reject that. So merely moral behavior is not enough to be right with God. And the solution is not to get religious either. See, this was the whole reason why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. There were some religious people disturbing the churches that he had founded in Galatia. These people were Judaizers, and they were saying, if you want to be right with God, then you need to submit yourself to the entire law of Moses. And that includes the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. The problem with that is that the law cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit that we read about. The law can tell you what moral behavior is supposed to look like. The law can tell you how God punishes immorality. But the law can never change your heart. There's only one way to be right with God. You must be totally cleansed from all sin, completely purified from every wrong thing that you have ever done, every wrong thing that you will ever do. That means the offense of your wrongdoing must be taken away, and you must be cleansed from the guilt of sin as well. Now, that's not something that any of us are capable of doing ourselves. Even if you are a moral person, being a moral person today does not compensate for the sins that you committed yesterday. You cannot go back and change the past. You cannot change the fact that these things happened. And that is why in the end, only God himself can cleanse you from your wrongdoing. And this is the great paradox of true faith. That only God can make you acceptable before God. Only God can make you right in the eyes of God. And he did through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about this earlier in his letter when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And this tree that he's referring to is the cross. So there's no human effort involved at all in, in this question of making us right before God. Only God himself can cleanse you. Only God can make you right in his eyes. And that's what he promises through baptism. And that's what we saw this morning when we witnessed the baptism of little Oakley Jordan Bonker. You saw yourself how small he was. There's nothing he can do to make himself right with God in any way. He didn't understand a word of the baptismal form that was read over him. And yet, in that baptism, God made a promise. A promise to him. A promise to cleanse him from all his sin. But this promise also calls for a response of faith. Not just from Oakley, but from us all. Faith that God will keep his promise of cleansing and renewal in our lives. And then that faith is also expressed in turning away from sin. And there's a logic to that, isn't there? If you believe that sin is so wicked that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to cleanse you from sin in the past, then you're going to express that belief by turning from sin in the present. But here's the thing, the Holy Spirit empowers you to do that. 
And that makes sense, doesn't it? If God hates sin so much that he had his own son crucified so that it could be taken out of our lives, then does it not make sense that he would empower us by his spirit to fight sin in the present? That's why belonging to Christ is about much more than just establishing some new moral habits. It's about a fundamental denial of your old nature. Our text says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, why the flesh specifically? Why does he use that word? Why flesh? What does it mean? Well, some people think this just refers to your body. They might be inclined to think that flesh refers maybe to your sexuality or something like that. Something in the realm of the body. They might think it refers to suppressing certain bodily urges and desires. That must be what he means. But actually, the Lord Jesus said that sin runs much deeper than that. In Matthew 15, verse 19, he said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. So sin originates in the heart. And in the Bible, the heart is your innermost being. It involves your mind, your will, your emotions, your desires. And that's why our text refers to the flesh with its passions and desires. It is not trying to eliminate those other things and only focus on the bodily side of us. It doesn't do that. Scripture doesn't work that way. It says the flesh with its passions and desires. So what is the flesh? The flesh is everything in us that is opposed to God's rule over our lives. The Catechism calls it the old nature. Lord's Day 33. It's not two halves of us, a good half and an evil half, like some yin-yang symbol, but two natures that coexist in us. And one of them has got to go. The Catechism refers to the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. And that is the same thing that Paul is referring to in our text when he talks about crucifying the flesh. Now, on this idea of crucifying the flesh, it's important that we understand exactly what he means here. There's a clear and obvious difference between Christ's crucifixion and our crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion was to take away our sin. Christ's crucifixion was to make us right with God. And that applies to all of our sins, past, present, and future. So whatever crucifying the flesh means in our text, it has nothing to do with making ourselves right before God. You need to understand that. This has been done already. Instead, to crucify the flesh means to reject everything sinful in our lives. This word crucified connects it to the cross of Christ. It says, we must absolutely break with all sin in our lives. Because this is why the body of Christ was broken. This is why his blood was poured out. It was because of our sin. But it also tells us something else about the flesh. Christ's crucifixion tells us 
that the flesh is judged. It tells us that its power has been broken. And that means that we are empowered to fight sin in our lives. As Paul later wrote in Romans 6 verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when Paul uses this phrase, crucified the flesh, he means that we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ because we belong to Christ, because we Believe in Christ, we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to crucify our own flesh. We are empowered to fight sin in our own lives. But the word crucify shows us how difficult it is to do this. To pick up your cross means that you're going to die. It means everything that is in you that is opposed to the Holy Spirit, to His reign in, your, in our lives, needs to perish. And it is not a quick process. Crucifixion was a wretched death. It was death by degrees. It was a panting, gasping, struggling, agonized death as life slowly ebbed away. A horrific death. A death reserved only for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. So, this terminology shows us how seriously we need to take this, how much we need to hate this old nature. And it shows us how difficult it is to put it to death. There are no shortcuts. So, how do we go about doing this? Well, the canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 14, indicate that the key is Scripture. It says, just as it is, Please God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So if we want guidance in holy living, then we need to go where the word is applied to our lives. And that means going to church as often as the opportunity is given. One question you may have after all this is, why, why does it put it in the past tense? Right? It, says, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And you've just told us that this is very difficult. This makes it sound like it's already been accomplished. Why is it in the past tense? Well, when he puts it in the past tense, it cannot indicate that that you're done already, because in verse 26 it gives an admonition. So it is clear, even from the context itself here, that, that there's still work that needs to happen in our lives, but that doesn't answer the question, does it? Why does he put it in the past tense? Well, it's a question of identity. If you belong to Christ, you belong completely. The power of the old nature is broken. The old nature was crucified with Christ. The canons of Dort put it so well in chapter 5, article 1, when it says that we are set free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not from the flesh and the body of sin. It is his death that 
deals a mortal blow to our old nature. His spirit that empowers us to live a new life when we respond to him in faith. So we have a new identity in the crucifixion of Christ. And we're now called to live out of that identity. That's why he says in verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now some translations will say here, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk with the Spirit. But actually, it is a more accurate translation to say, keep in step with. There's a specific reason for that word. The same word is, uh, the the idea is of of, uh, walking in line with someone. You can imagine maybe people marching in formation, but um, the same word is used in Romans 4 verse 12 to refer to following in the footsteps of Abraham. So there the idea is walking in single file. And the point is that um, here the Spirit goes ahead and we follow behind Him in His footsteps, so to speak. That's the point that He's making. We walk in line with the Spirit leading the way. See, the same Spirit who gives life also calls us to live out of that life and empowers us to live that life. Empowers us to keep in step. That's the command, to keep in step. And the command itself empowers us. The Spirit empowers us through the command because we already belong to Christ as He promised to us in baptism. The Lord does not call us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires on our own. We're not strong enough for that. No. He promises us that those who belong to Christ Jesus, have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, you can't expect this to be easy. Sometimes it seems like people think that if you're a true Christian, it should be easy to fight sin. And maybe you're struggling with sin in your own life right now when you look at other people and you say, it's easy for them and it should be easier for me than it is. And you feel guilt. Where did you get that idea from? Where in the Bible are we ever promised that the fight against sin will be easy? What chapter and verse? It's never going to be easy. That's not a pillow fight. More like a cage fight with only one survivor. It's a fight to the death. It is picking up your cross every day. Each and every day you're confronted with this reality of the the death of Christ and what it means for you. And then to live out of that, out of his death, out of his resurrection. And it's never easy. But the way that you experience that struggle does change over time. It is not that you stop being tempted, but you learn to stop giving in. You do have this power. Eventually the temptation will become less. Then the act of not giving in becomes a habit. Keeping in step with the Spirit is all about habits. The Christian life is not about one or two transformative moments. Even for Paul on the Damascus Road, yeah, there was a, a moment in which he, was, he encountered Christ and he was regenerated. 
But look at everything that still had to happen in his life after that. The Christian life is not about one or two transformative moments. A lot of it has to do with being faithful in the small things, faithful in the small choices, faithful in the small habits that you build up day over day. You can't expect a magic bullet to solve your current spiritual struggles. The next book, the next podcast, the next conference, the next sermon, it doesn't work that way. It never has. And if it seemed to for a while, it was just an illusion. The growth of fruit takes time. Scripture says so. Christians know this from their own life experience. It takes time. So we should be patient. We should also remember that the fruit of the Spirit will not grow in us if we actively sabotage its growth, cutting off the buds wherever they form. Self-sabotage means that you make it easy for you to fail. For example, someone who struggles with looking at pornography but always has his phone close at hand is not taking his struggle seriously. Someone who drinks too much but then goes to parties where there is likely to be too much drinking is not taking her struggle seriously. These people are not crucifying the flesh. That is not how it works. You cannot expect to be empowered by the Holy Spirit if you are constantly engaged in behavior that grieves the Holy Spirit. To crucify the flesh means you don't even get close to what makes you sin. And we all know what makes us sin. You don't stop to even think about it. You'd be like Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. And he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And day after day she asked him and finally she wanted him to anyway. And he turned and ran. That should be our default response to any situation of temptation. How can I do this great sin and wickedness against God? And then you run. Don't say you can't do it. You can. Scripture says so. You have the power. It's God's promise. But you have to take it seriously. And don't expect it to be easy. The old nature doesn't want to die. Do you think that it's going to let us go that easily? They will fight with tooth and nail to stay on top. And you know what? By nature, we're lazy. And sometimes sometimes we've listened to the wrong things. It's much easier for us to hide behind the secular terminology of addiction and secular psychology and roll over and give up struggling. Or maybe we focus on the wrong things when we struggle. But we need to remember what the Apostle Peter wrote in a second letter about the Spirit of Christ. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have this already. You don't need to go elsewhere to receive it. You have this. His divine power has granted to us all things that we need. All things that pertain to life and godliness. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You can keep in step with the Spirit. You are empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And then you're no longer motivated just, with, just by dealing with whatever the situation is in your life. Your motivation is much bigger than that. You are motivated by the glory of Christ. That's our second point. Now, if you um, are looking at this text carefully, you might wonder where does this idea of glory come from? Why do you bring that into the sermon? What does that have to do with this text? Well, it actually comes from reflecting on this word in verse 26, conceited. It says, let us not become conceited. Literally, it says, let us not become vainglorious. Old word, we don't use it much anymore, but that is what it says. It's a, a direct translation of the Greek, vainglorious. Vain means worthless or empty. So someone who is vainglorious is someone whose glory is worthless or empty. What is glory? Glory is the visible representation of the splendor and the majesty of God. Ultimately, all earthly glory fades into insignificance compared to the glory of Christ. The prophet Daniel saw some of that glory. In chapter 7 of his book, he describes a vision where, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is Jesus he's describing. That... that, Designation Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. This passage is about Him, about His glory. And that is why in Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give the glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. See, none of this is about us. Our life is not about us. Our struggles is, are not about us. It is not about Our glory, we are motivated by the glory of Christ. And this is why the Christian life is not about self-improvement. And we need to get away from this toxic idea of improving yourself in your Christian walk of faith. That's not what it's about. It is not seven steps to becoming a better Christian or ten ways to be more holy before the Lord. It is, good, it is good for us, of course, to, to be shown things from Scripture. But don't get the idea that the Christian life is about 
self-improvement. That's toxic. Self-improvement is not motivated by the glory of Christ. Did you hear that? Self-improvement is not motivated by the glory of Christ. Self-improvement is motivated by desire to become better in your own eyes and the eyes of the people around you. Self-improvement is measured by comparing yourself to other Christians and how you appear to them. It's about pursuing your own reputation and your own self-esteem instead of the glory of Christ. And that is why true faith should never be confused with mere morality. Morality is about the surface. Morality is about superficial changes. True faith is about resurrection. It is about transformation. The problem with self-improvement is that it feeds on comparing yourself with others. And once that comparison starts to work out in your favor, then you want other people to notice. Sometimes people say that they're only doing it for themselves. That can hardly be true. Think about it. If you were the only person on planet Earth, would there still be any point in improving yourself? No. Once you improve yourself enough, though, you, you become conceited. And then you get one of two reactions. Either you feel like you're better than the people around you, so you start to challenge them in all sorts of subtle ways. That's what verse 26 means. It refers to provoking one another. Provoking others is challenging them. Challenging them maybe on, on the basis of the perceived difference between you and them. Challenging them. Don't you dare call my integrity or my morality into question. Who do you think you are? Challenging others. Provoking one another. Or it might happen that you run into someone who is actually better than you. You don't have to look far for that. We can all think of Christians that are further along the path of sanctification than we are. And then you have the other half of that verse, that you're envying them. See, let us not become conceited, vainglorious, provoking one another. That's looking down at others or envying one another, looking up. In both cases, you're comparing yourselves to others. You're not, you're not serving them. Now, it might be that, that you, know, you hear this and you think, well, I don't really find myself in that. It doesn't apply to me. I'm not improving myself for others. That's fine, but to not do it for others does not mean that we therefore do it for the glory of God. Again, if you, if you got rid, for example, of a pornography addiction in your life, that's great. But if you did it just to make yourself a better person, it's still not a fruit of the Spirit. It wasn't motivated by the glory of Christ. And, and what's the point of that? What does a profit a man if he gains if he gains that, if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? The glory of Christ is so much more. There's nothing greater to live for than that. How tremendous he is. And one day, he says, one day the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. From Daniel 7. He's going to be here. He's going to come in the glory of his Father. And every vain glory 
Every man-centered life will be exposed for what it was. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. That is a dreadful warning for those who refuse to repent. It is a great encouragement for those who belong to Christ and who want to see his glory and who want to see him come and who want to see, see all worship him. The only lasting motivation in life is to see that glory. To crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And it's a daily struggle. And it's not the same struggle for everybody. The things that you struggle with might be different from the things that other people struggle with. But when we crucify the flesh, even if no one else sees, even if no one else understands, it brings glory to God. So when we see another believer crucifying the flesh, when we see another believer struggling with things that are not a problem for us, don't look down on them. Respect their struggles. Encourage them in their struggles. Even if you cannot relate to those struggles, encourage them. Encourage them. Even if it's not the same struggle that you have, because you're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. You are seeing God at work. Anytime that any believer crucifies a flesh in any area, it's evidence of the Spirit of Christ. It brings glory to the name of Christ. It puts us all on the same page, the page of struggling, the page that will one day be turned over by the hand of God himself. So let's talk about our struggles together. Let's be open and honest. Let's not talk about these things, put them on the peripheries of the Christian life when they're actually central to our identity as Christians. Let's enlist each other's prayers and support And let's stop excusing sin in our lives, in our community. Let's stop hiding our struggles. Then we can encourage each other to bring glory to Christ together. And then we can be motivated by what he does in others. And that carries a power with it and a momentum with it, which is much greater than than anything superficial that we could do. At the beginning of the sermon, we noted that many people wear a cross. Should you wear a cross as well? Well, of all people, Christians should more than anyone else, but not just as a sign of what Christ has done for you, but of what he does in you. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Amen.